call the second case now, Adams versus the State of Minnesota. Ms. Yock uh, Erickson, you've reserved 10 minutes for rebuttal. You may proceed when you're ready. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Jenna Yauk Erickson. I am an assistant state public defender, and I am here this morning representing the appellant, Mr. Chance Adams. Mr. Adams has raised one issue for this court's consideration. That is whether he was denied his right to equal protection when the state struck a black woman from the jury veneer. We would ask you to find that his right was violated and to award him a new trial. In this case, the district court found that a prima facie case of racial discrimination was satisfied. The court found that there was a prima facie case that juror nine was struck because she was black. And in addition, the district court made two more specific findings, that there were two different types of disparate questions asked to juror nine. First, she was asked one type of disparate questions that focused on her family where no other previously questioned jurors were asked such questions. And second, the district court found a second type of disparate questioning, that only juror nine was asked repetitive questions that she had already answered on her questionnaire. As a result of the state striking juror nine, Mr. Adams was tried before a jury that contained no black jurors. Counsel, do you agree that juror nine was untruthful in some of the answers to the questions on the questionnaire? I do not, Your Honor. She was never arrested? We have no idea whether she was arrested. There are no facts in the record about that. But that was the basis that was put forward by the state? No. The basis put forward by the prosecutor was that she had a conviction and was not honest about it. Well, she denied that she had a conviction. She didn't check a box on a form. That is the only information we have in the record about what she believed, what she said about her conviction. To be clear, she has no conviction. It was vacated six years before this trial, and she isn't asked a single question about that conviction. She's not directed to it. She's not specified about it. In fact, the prosecutor doesn't ask her at all about having a conviction. The one question he asks her is whether she's been charged or accused. To that, she says, no, sir. Uh, don't believe that can be deemed false either, because we don't why, know what's- Why not? But how do you, okay, let's back up. How do you end up with a vacation of a conviction if you've never been charged? Explain that to me. Well, again, this court's duty is to look at the prosecutor's stated reasons to examine them for race neutrality and for pretext. The prosecutor's stated reason there's two, but the one we're addressing right now is that she had a conviction and she did not disclose it. She doesn't so have a conviction. I think that's cutting it a little too finely because he said, um, I think on page 
210 that she was accused of a crime, which is very different than having a conviction. And he said that before the district court did. So what he said, and I'm on page 209, Your Honor. Yep, I, I, I will turn the page as well. He first says, a search of her name in Minsis indicated that she was convicted of a crime. So I am very concerned that she's not being completely honest for whatever reason. We research all juror names as a matter of course, and it was a misdemeanor, but I mean she was still accused of a crime. When the court goes on to make its findings, the court's finding is that the race-neutral reason, this one that we're addressing right now, is that she had a conviction and didn't disclose it. So certainly the court understood the prosecutor's reason to be about a conviction. Again, she's not asked about it. All she did was fail to check a box. Even if you disagree, even if you conclude she, she was dishonest, and that is a race-neutral reason for the strike, we have two more problems. The first is that the district court committed a clear error by inventing new reasons for this strike once it was proven to be false. That is very clearly disallowed under Dredke, right? So the court learns because the defense attorney looked her up, said, Your Honor, that conviction, that six-year-old misdemeanor conviction has been vacated, amended, and dismissed. She doesn't have it. At that point, the prosecutor doesn't defend that reason, doesn't withdraw it, doesn't say a single word, and the district court of her own volition reinvents the reason. Says, well, there were other things she was dishonest about. There were other reasons she could have been struck. Courts cannot do that. There's no harmless error analysis for a race-based strike. You determine yes or no. Was it based on her race? It is erroneous, clearly erroneous, for a district court learning that one of the proffered reasons was false or, or questionable to on its own, go look for other reasons. Courts cannot do that. That is a clear error. You can reverse on that clear error alone. And even if you don't do that, there is ample evidence in this record that both given reasons were pretextual. The prior conviction reason was not addressed at all by the state. This prosecutor stood there and said he was very concerned that she was being dishonest. He didn't ask her a single question about the conviction. Imagine a prosecutor during cross-examination, asking a witness about honesty and, and learns that witness just lied under oath. What prosecutor isn't going to ask a follow-up question, isn't going to build well, a record? Isn't that up to the prosecutor, though? I mean, is there anything that requires them to have a follow-up question once they have been less than truthful? No, Your Honor, but what we do know from the United States Supreme Court is that a failure to ask questions is evidence of pretext. When that attorney then stands in front of a court and says, this is why I struck her. I am very concerned she's being dishonest. The absence of any questions asked about that dishonesty is telling. Additionally, the prosecutor's failure to defend the prior conviction. Can you refer me to the case that you're referring to, counsel? Absolutely, Your Honor. That's Dretke. It was cited in my brief. Thank you. It's 545 U.S. 231. In Dretke as well, the prosecutor there gave a reason for a strike that was determined to be factually false, false on the record. And there it was determined relatively quickly as well. And what the court said reviewing that reason was it is also telling that that attorney didn't defend that reason, didn't withdraw it, didn't say anything, but added sort of an aside. The court said that reeks of afterthought. You have similar sort of behavior here. There's at least a question as to whether or not she had a conviction, lied about a conviction. And the prosecutor doesn't say a word. Doesn't say, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Doesn't say, well, Your Honor, perhaps that reason isn't valid, but we had a second reason. Nothing. As the court proceeds to reinvent the reasons for the strike, to, to look elsewhere in the record for something to shore up this strike, says nothing until he adds, she had a lot more police contacts, but I don't want to get deeper into it. Again, evidence of pretext. We have no idea what that means, right? He adds that later, once his reason has been proven false. She's also an ideal juror for the state. This juror has said she wants to be on the jury. She will follow instructions. She will be fair. She has no bias. She's got no problem with prosecutors. She says, everybody's got a job to do. I've got no problems with prosecutors. I'm not biased in favor of either side says she thinks the victim's family should get justice. She thinks the guilty actor should receive a consequence. All of these answers lead the prosecutor to say he liked her. 
He liked her. He's an ideal juror for the state. And one of the other things we learn from the federal cases is that when a juror is ideal, the state's strike of that juror looks more suspicious, and the failure to ask any follow-up questions about a topic the state claims to be concerned about is even more concerning, is even more troubling, that she was a great juror for the state. And she's not asked a single question about this supposed prior misdemeanor conviction that she's supposedly lying about. Now, there is a second... I don't think the state ever accused her of lying. Well, respondent has on appeal, to be sure. Well, no, they're saying, you know, she was, she was dishonest or, you know, but I mean, lying just seems like a very harsh term that wasn't used. Like maybe she forgot about it or something, but they had concerns about it. They did, Your Honor. And what we do is check those stated reasons for race neutrality and for pretext. So even if you accept the reason, you accept... So was there anybody else on the jury pool who had a prior conviction and didn't answer indicating that they did? There actually was, Your Honor, but it never came up because I believe she was excused by Mr. Adams. So the state never had the opportunity to question that juror. There was one other <clears throat> fellow who had three prior convictions, but he disclosed all of them in the questionnaire and, and he was asked about them. He was. And we know from that juror's acceptance onto the jury that the concern did not appear to be the fact of conviction. The concern that was stated appeared to be about dishonesty. Right, that it wasn't mentioned at all when, when she was asked specific things on a questionnaire. No, I mean, so she didn't check that box. Again, she doesn't have a conviction. No, it, but the whole, you know, have you been, have you, you talked to, been investigated? Have you been accused of a crime? That's different than a conviction. I would say that is different, Your Honor. But the problem is we don't know what's in her head. If a juror had a prior conviction that had been pardoned, or a juror had a prior conviction that had been de declared by a court of appeal to be based on insufficient evidence, does well, that juror... But counsel, she had to know that she was either accused or charged or however you want to uh, characterize it when she had to show up in I'd court. And she, as I understand the record, she, she entered a plea. So, I mean, I think it's common knowledge and understanding of people that, you know, you don't show up in court and enter a plea unless you've been charged with something. I disagree, Your Honor. This is a disorderly conduct misdemeanor that's charged by citation. <clears throat> but and she it, pled to it, right? She did. And the state's reason was that she had a conviction and didn't disclose it. It was not about charges. It was not about accusations. It was not about arrests. It was not about court appearances. Those are things the district court came up with on its own after this question was raised about her conviction. So the only thing you test for race neutrality is the prosecutor's stated reason, the reason that she had a conviction and she didn't disclose it. Even if you accept that reason, even if you disagree with me, you think she, she was dishonest, that was a valid race-neutral reason for the strike, it is pretextual for all of the reasons I just listed. She is ideal. And they Counsel, did would, would you agree that you can lie or, and I think we ought to just be straightforward, you know, lying's lying, um, if she did it, um, but you can lie by omission. You can misrepresent by omission. And so her not checking the box, is, isn't that just as significant as if she had, had outright, you know, said something that was inaccurate? I mean, your thoughts on that? No, for two reasons, Your Honor. First, I think it is much different to fill out a form by yourself that is lengthy, that is detailed, than to stand in front of a court, in front of lawyers, and answer questions. And no, but I think most people are very careful. I mean, when someone's asking you whether or not you've been convicted of a crime, that, that's an attention getter. You don't just, I would think, in, in a typical scheme of things, skim over information like that, well, or a I, question I, like that. I have looked through the thousand-some pages of the questionnaires in this case, Your Honor, and I would say there are a vast difference in how fully they are filled out. I don't think any of those folks are trying to do anything wrong. Nobody likes filling out forms. There's a ton of questions. There's all sorts of different boxes to check. It, now, compare this to Curtis. 
So in Curtis, this court also confronted a juror who had seemingly been untruthful. So in Curtis, it was a challenge raised by a defendant who said, a juror answered, no, I do not know any of the trial witnesses. And later said, yes, I do know one of the trial witnesses. But in Curtis, this said, this court said, it is much more likely that that juror made an innocent omission than a nefarious lie. If that juror gets the benefit of the doubt, so should juror nine. She didn't check a box because she doesn't have a conviction. Again, if someone is pardoned or someone's conviction is reversed, should they have to check that box for the rest of their lives? Do they know that they're supposed to check that box? Because that's the real question. She's, a, a lie is something that's in her head, right? We are not here to determine whether or not she had a conviction. This court has a ton of cases on that question. This is not one of them. The question is, did she lie? And actually, not even that. The question Counsel, is... Here, here's what I have problems with, though. I think the record is different. I'm looking at now 214. And it's not that it's just that she didn't check the box on the questionnaire, but the, the judge says, and this is be, while they're still at stage two of the Batson inquiry, and the court saying, you know, I specifically asked her the question that she left blank, been arrested or placed under investigation. She didn't indicate anything. And then Mr. Miller, I think, further inquired. He asked her specifically if she'd ever been arrested. Mr. Miller says charged with or accused of a crime. So it was not just the questionnaire, but also they were asked in court. Um, and I don't think you would have liked it if, if uh, Mr. Miller had uh, asked her over and over questions about, you know, whether she had been accused of a crime. Well, certainly if he's concerned. So let's take him at his word. He's concerned that she's not disclosing a conviction because that's what he said. He should have asked her one question. It perhaps as a follow-up to have you been charged or accused. Ma'am, you, you weren't charged with misdemeanor disorderly conduct in 2011. You don't have a misdemeanor conviction for two, from 2011. That's not hard, and that's not rude. That's not inconsiderate. That's him following up on his concern. As to the record, Your Honor, I disagree. By that point, the court had already made its step two findings. At page 211, the court does find that the reasons provided by the state do qualify as race-neutral explanations. Then they went on, and on 214, she said, uh, we're now moving on to step three of the Batson challenge. So well, it was kind of a, you know, it, these things can't be done with precision. I mean, people are in the midst of a trial and... You know, I think this one was conducted as well as I've ever seen in terms of keeping the steps separate and um, looking at each individual uh, item. I, I adamantly disagree, Your Honor. Batson demands precision, and not just precision in now we're at step one, now we're at step two, now we're at step three. What it, Batson and its progeny say is the court doesn't get to invent reasons. It checks them. Why? Because we want to determine whether the prosecutor is really striking a person based on his or her race. So we look at the words. Words matter. We look at what the prosecutor said, and that is what we test. The court had already made her findings. The only reason they continued is because the defense attorney sitting there said, that's wrong. That's wrong, and I want to make a record. I want to point this out. Notably, at the end of the conversation you're referencing, the court didn't change its findings. The court didn't say, specifically, now that I've had input from both counsel, I want to change my findings at step two because it had had no input from counsel. The prosecutor didn't say a word. The prosecutor didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, my true concern was her general dishonesty. I believe she's being evasive. I believe she was hesitant. I think she lied about being charged or accused. None of that. What the court did is absolutely prohibited by Dretke. She heard the reasons. She made the findings. Those findings were challenged. She doesn't get to reinvent them. Absolutely not, because we're testing the stated reasons to see if they were really not true, to see if there was really something else going on. The only way we can do that is to take prosecutors at their word. That's exactly what the court said. Prosecutors have to, quote, stand or fall on the reasons given. And specifically says neither district courts or appellate courts should engage in the practice of thinking up any rational basis that the strike might have been made. That's not what you do. You look at their words. Their words matter. You check those words. Anne says the fact that a court can substitute a reason doesn't satisfy the state's burden. It's the state's burden to prove race-neutral reasons, not the court. Uh, counsel, I agree with you the prosecutor's words matter. And is it also the fact that in assessing the prosecutor's words, 
the district court judge is making some credibility determinations as to whether the strike was purposeful, purposefully racial discriminatory or not? Yes, Your Honor, that's what the district court is supposed to do. And what's our scope of review on that um, factual credibility de determination? All of the findings are reviewed for clear error, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. And one that we haven't discussed yet are the findings about the family member reason. So the family member reason was the second reason given at step two, is accepted as race neutral. And the assessment of pretext is incredibly lacking. The courts- Be Before you get going on your family involvement argument, the, the district court did not make a finding at step three as to that reason, correct? Did not, Your Honor. All right, let's say you're right um, on uh, the uh, conviction slash accusation slash dishonesty point, and we can argue about how it's characterized. Let's say you're right on the first um, stated reason. Then what do we do with the second stated reason? Do we grant a new trial, do we, or do we remand to the district court? If I understand your question, Your Honor, if either reason is pretextual, so if either reason was a cover for striking her because she's black, you have to reverse. You have to give him a new trial. It wouldn't matter if the second reason was... So the first reason taints the second reason? No, I think you review them independently. I mean, think of it this way. If at step two, a prosecutor standing before a court says, well, I have two reasons. For one, I struck this juror because he did not want to sit in judgment of his peers and he has to do that. Number two, I struck him because he's Latino. That, that is a race-based reason and would not satisfy step two and is a reason to grant a new trial if it gets to you. The fact that he gave another reason that was valid simply doesn't matter. Now, certainly, I think there is perhaps stronger evidence in the record that the family member reason was pretextual. Most dramatically, the prosecutor exaggerated well, I, I see you're back on step two. I was saying on, if, if the court... If we overturn the district court on step three on reason one, mm -hmm. then what do we do about reason two if we've determined it's, if we've determined it's not pretextual? Yes, so uh, process-wise. My question wasn't precise enough, I guess. No, I understand now, thank you. Uh, process-wise, I think you could do one of two things. You could not address that reason. You could say, just like if you have uh, two issues raised in the case and one is dispositive, you don't have to address the second issue. I think that would be true here. If you're reversing because the court made an error or the first reason given was pretextual, you, you actually must reverse on that ground alone. You wouldn't necessarily have to address the family member reason. I would ask you to. It is problematic in Minnesota's case law. And yeah, but, but before we get to the family involvement reason, would we grant a new trial because reason one was pretextual, or would we, would we say we're remanding on reason two to determine whether it's, uh, I'm sorry, would we reverse on, on uh, reason one because it wasn't, it was purposeful racial discrimination, and then remand on, on uh, reason two? What do we do about it? If either of the reasons is found by this court to be pretextual for racial discrimination, or if you find clear errors in the court's process, you have to grant a new trial. Uh, there is no place for remand. Actually, this court addressed this exact question in McRae. So McRae is the only case in the 33 years since Batson that this court has reversed on Batson grounds, but the court declined to specifically find racial discrimination, said we're, we're not finding that. Instead, what we're finding is that the court made a big error a significant error, a problematic error, a clear error. Because in that case, all the court did at step three was say the prosecutor gave an articulable reason, and that's enough. Strikingly similar to the court's step three analysis in this case. The entirety of the pretext analysis is contained in about two sentences at page 218. So I do find that the proffered reason from the state is sufficient to overcome the Batson challenge, and the Batson challenge is denied. That's it. Didn't cite any law, didn't use the word pretext, didn't undertake the sensitive inquiry that the case law demands, didn't look at all the circumstances as the case law demands, didn't even reference back to the court's own findings at the prima facie stage that there was disparate questioning. The disparate questioning has to be considered at the pretext stage, at least considered at the pretext stage. None of that was done. That makes this strikingly similar to McRae, where this court reversed sort of based on process errors, clear errors, because there was no analysis. The court abandoned its 
duty to analyze the prosecutor's stated reasons for pretext, you could do the same here. But what McRae says is there's no remand. Once there's this magnitude of problem and the problem is an equal protection violation, violation you grant a new trial. You've cited uh, Counsel McRae and Curtis. Are those the two principal authorities you'd rely on here on this pretextual point? Additionally, Dretke and Flowers. I guess you did say Dretke. Thank you. Yeah, yes. and, and Flowers. Thank you. Yes, of course. Turning to the family member reason, the prosecutor exaggerated Juror 9's answers, suggested both that there was a, quote, very close connection between her, her family, and the prosecutor's unit, and more so and more troublingly, suggested that she may have an agenda. He used the word agenda. There is no factual basis for this anywhere in the record. Her answers are excellent. She says, I, I have no problem with prosecutors. I'm not biased in favor of either side. I have no knowledge about my brother's prosecution. In fact, I think he probably deserved what was coming to him. I don't have any affiliation with those members of my family who have legal troubles. Nothing to suggest that she has some unnamed conspiratorial agenda against the state. Let's think about what he's suggesting. That this woman who's been randomly called to jury duty wants to get on this jury and somehow harm the state. There is no basis for that. And that reason, stated aloud on the record, suggests that something else is going on. Because when you have to resort to that sort of exaggeration and innuendo, it suggests that you're covering other reasons and that those other reasons are her racial identity. Additionally, we have findings from the district court that the prosecutor deviated in his questioning in two ways. She's the only one asked 25 questions about her family members. And she's the only one asked questions that she's already answered on her questionnaire. That tells us a couple of things. Wasn't she the only one, though, that had, um, in fact, her brother was prosecuted by someone else in the exact division that was um, handling the case that was before the court? That we know of, Your Honor. Uh, certainly the prosecutors claimed to be concerned about this. Her answers gave them no reason to be. She didn't know who prosecuted her brother. She didn't know who the judge was. She didn't know what his sentence was. She, she steers clear of that part of her family. She went as far to say, I don't hang out with them. I don't get to know them. I don't want to know them. So even what we know is at some unknown time, one of her six siblings was prosecuted by an unknown prosecutor who happens to work with these prosecutors. And that connection was labeled very close and suggested that she may have an agenda to try and get on this jury. Additionally, we have the deviation. We have her answers that make her an ideal juror for the state. And we have the disproportionate impact when this reason is trotted out on people of color in Minnesota. I see that this, my time has expired. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Griffin. May it please the court, counsel, good morning. My name is Mark Griffin. I'm an assistant Hennepin County attorney. I'm here today representing the state of Minnesota. This is not a case about the effect of racial prejudice on jury selection. Counsel, can you just make sure to keep the microphone close to you? Yes, Your Honor. Thank, thank you. you. It is a case about the effect of failing to follow the judge's instructions during jury selection. Looking at the record, Judge Ascalani made specific findings about whether or not juror nine had followed her instructions. Juror nine did not. That is why juror nine was stricken. Going through the steps, and I guess I would note page 218, line six, um, the judge specifically said, I find the juror nine provided incorrect or false information to this court and did so under oath. That was the overarching reason why she found the strike was to be race neutral. There were things that um, the juror did not disclose or 
only disclosed after a great deal of questioning, but looking at the steps. So council suggests that it matters here that um, the answer specifically, or the, the issue specifically identified by the state um, was responded to and that the district court then cited other reasons not relied upon by the state. Does that, uh, is that a material um, problem here for, for the state? And if not, why not? I don't believe it is, Your Honor, because when you look at the, uh, the transcript, the state raised a number of reasons. Beginning at page 209, line 14, juror 9 has a brother who's been convicted of a crime prosecuted by our office. Line 20, and this is the prosecutor raising these as race-neutral reasons. Two other of her brothers were also prosecuted by our office. She hadn't disclosed any of that. That point, I, I would submit to this court, Martin already exists. And that was information developed by the judge in addition and then the cited by... I mean, I think that's the point that counsel's making here, that it matters that the judge is identifying these issues and that the prosecution is not. Does that matter? I believe the judge did, Your Honor. The um, Going forward ahead to page 211, where the judge is reflecting on the race-neutral reasons, line 13, family members' involvement in the criminal justice system. I believe she cited the Martin case. Line 18, page 4, the, from the questionnaire. Counsel, I'm going to come at it maybe a little differently than where Justice Anderson is. I think the point is that that's the problem, that it's the judge doing that, not the prosecutor. I think that's your opponent's point. Well, when I, if it I can shouldn't, back. It shouldn't have been her. Well, I think the prosecutor did make those, uh, uh, or note those in the record. Um, as I said before, when he was talking line 14 and line 20, he talked about her family's involvement in the criminal justice system. Line 22, the prosecutor had talked about Mince's showing that she was convicted of a crime. That became a bone of contention a, a few minutes later. Line 24, the prosecutor said, I was concerned, or he was concerned, about her being honest in her answers to the questionnaire and while being questioned. That's exactly what Judge Ascalani later found was the main reason for excusing Juror 9. She was not honest in her responses. Um, line, uh, page 210, line 2, the prosecutor is talking about the, he uses the word accused. He doesn't say convicted. He said she didn't disclose being accused of a crime. Well, she had been accused of a crime. We can get into a debate about the effects of 609-135, but the fact of the matter was she had been accused of a crime. She was charged with a disorderly conduct. Line 6, the prosecutor talks about his concern, can she be fair and impartial? Line 15, again referencing her brothers being convicted. And line 25, she was, the, her brother was just sentenced recently. Imagine the dynamic. If you're the prosecutor sitting in that table and you find out that at, before the prosecutor did his questions, it was entirely possible that he had sent Juror Nine's brother to prison. He wouldn't know that without asking. And yet in the process of asking, that's what the appellant has now categorized as some sort of pretextual racist attack on the juror. How is the prosecutor supposed to know without asking the questions? Because the juror had not been forthcoming. Beginning on page 211, Judge Ascalani then went through her race-neutral reasons. Family members' involvement in the system, that's the Martin case. She referenced page 4, the question regarding being accused of a crime, not just convicted of it. And she noted on the questionnaire that juror 9 left it blank. Page 212, Judge Ascalani talked about how she did not disclose, the juror did not disclose information about her disorderly conduct. On page 213 at line 23, the judge noted that juror 9 had been charged with a crime and the questionnaire, page 4, asked for that information and she hadn't provided it. Page, page 214, line 6. And I, I believe someone referenced this already. This is the trial judge to whom this court gives great deference in these matters. The judge said, I specifically asked her if she'd been arrested or investigated, and so did the state. Line 13, the judge noted that juror 9 said no. And at 215, line 21, the judge said, the issue is not whether she's been convicted or not. 
The issue is, has she ever been accused or charged? Page 216, line 4, the judge noted that juror 9 appeared in court, which she must have done since she signed a waiver and a plea form. You can't do that by phone. She had to show up in court. Finally, based on all of those Counsel, help me. Was it appropriate for the judge to now be getting into whether she was accused or charged? Well, I think that had become an issue after the defense raised the issue of whether there was a conviction or not. And besides, on the questionnaire, the, the state had at one point asked Juror 9 if she'd ever been accused. That's in the, in the uh, transcript. But in the questionnaire, um, she was specifically asked, um, have you ever been charged with or accused of a crime? And she checked the box for family. She didn't check the box for herself. So yes, it was appropriate because this was information that the judge had ordered her to disclose in the questionnaire, and she hadn't done it. So I think to do you think it's possible, though? Do you think it's possible, though, as your opponent suggests that that you know, in the midst of these gazillions of questions on the questionnaire, and given what appears to be her status with respect to the disorderly conduct uh, conviction, that maybe she didn't realize that she had been accused or charged. She may have forgotten. I can't imagine that six years earlier you would forget that you had been charged with a crime and had to go to court. Um, but I would, I would. Does, does it matter whether she knew or not? That, because it's the prosecutor's intent we're looking at, right? That's where I was going next, Your Honor. I don't think it matters. Um, I mean, appellant has a couple of times inferred that we're, you know, attacking her and calling her a liar. I did use the word lie in the brief, but I also specifically put in there. This is this is a this is not a situation that non-court people find themselves in very much. It's it's nervous or nerve-wracking enough to be before the Minnesota Supreme Court. You can imagine how she would feel coming into a courtroom, being given a questionnaire, and then interrogated by a judge and two attorneys. People forget things. People make mistakes. Maybe she made a mistake. Maybe she forgot. It doesn't matter. What matters is. Does the evidence that's in the record provide a race-neutral reason for striking her from the jury? So to answer your question, if she completely forgot about the disorderly conduct plea and the subsequent discharge, it's still a legitimate reason to excuse her from the jury, a race-neutral reason. And I guess I would just go back to... Um, the final rash reasoning that uh, Judge Ascalani gave, if I think there was some mention of this before, uh, reading through the transcript, this um, analysis was not haphazard and it wasn't cursory. Uh, th this was contemplative. She went through specific things that the state had raised, specific questions raised by the questionnaire, and she made a finding that this juror had provided incorrect or false information to the court. Counsel, what do you say to opposing counsel's argument? This was a great juror for the prosecution. The fact that she got struck, there can be only one reason. Uh, what I say is, if I, it doesn't matter, first of all. Um, looking at the record, so the juror says, I can be fair. Most, most jurors do. Um, most jurors, if they did have, harbor some animosity toward the state, they're not going to admit it. So the prosecutor is confronted with, the, with this situation. My office just sent her brother to prison for 60 months, just a couple of months ago. What if she's harboring a bias that she doesn't want to disclose? I, I'm sitting here prosecuting a murder case. I have to keep the case together. I have to prove it. And now I'm going to take the risk of putting a juror into the juror room who is mad at me, doesn't like my office, doesn't like the Hennepin County District Court. That on its face is a legitimate reason for excusing that person. You don't have to know, because we'll never know, exactly what's in her heart and in her mind. But there is a potential there for a bias against the state, and that's enough to exclude her. Um, counsel, should the judge had have gone through and done an analysis of the second reason once it found that the first reason 
was sufficient and wasn't um, based on improper animus? I, I don't know if I understood your question. I'm just wondering if the court stopped too soon. Um, you know, there were two reasons given right. by the prosecutor for why the prosecutor exercised the strike. And the district court analyzed the one and said, no, it wasn't improper, but didn't look at the second reason at all. I, I would argue that the second reason as, is actually folded into her conclusion. I realize that she, when she gets to step three, what she's analyzing is, is the issue of the prior conviction or being accused of an offense. But the entire discussion up to that point involved not only that, but also um, the ha having relatives involved, <clears throat> excuse me, in the criminal justice system. In fact, if you look at the record, and I don't have the page written here, Judge Ascalani herself cited to Martin when she was making her findings. So she was very much aware of the line of cases which say that a family member being involved in the criminal justice system is a race-neutral reason for striking a juror. I, I, sorry, I don't have that page number in front of me. <clears throat> I'm sorry? Thank you, Your Honor. I wanted, if the court would permit me, to show you what the attorneys in the trial court were dealing with at the time, and perhaps that would be... Well, counsel, if I might interrupt yes. you before you go on. The reference to 211 is at step two of Batson. The district court didn't make any finding at step three with regards to the family involvement reason. That is correct, Your Honor, and that's why I think my argument was that was folded into the court's finding um, on page 218 regarding incorrect and false information because not disclosing a family member being involved, that's providing... Well, at step two, she determined that the prosecution had articulated race-neutral reasons for the strike. But then at step three, she made a finding with regards to the accusation conviction reason but did not make a finding with regards to the family involvement reason. So let's determine that she committed clear error with respect to the uh, first reason. Then what do we do with the second reason? The first reason being which one of the two? The, the, accu the accusation, conviction, uh, alleged misrepresentation. So we're assuming that we've, that got, we've got two reasons at play right. here. We've got, I, I'm careful <clears throat> about how to phrase the first one because there's definitely some disagreement on that but something relating to an accusation or a conviction. The second one was family involvement in the criminal justice system. If the first one turns out, if the district court was clearly erroneous in, on the first reason, then what do we do with the second reason? Is Mr. Adams entitled to a new trial, or should we remand the second reason back to Judge Ascalani? Yes, I do not believe that he's entitled to a new trial because, first of all, my argument is the judge clearly considered both of those when she made her step three findings. That's on step two, she certainly considered both of them, but she mm -hmm. didn't, as I, I don't see her saying anything at step three well, about the family involvement reason. She doesn't enumerate them specifically, but she does say provided incorrect or false information. The family reason and the being accused of a crime are incorrect and or false information. Therefore, yes, does she specifically say it? So how was, the, she, how was the family? Because she didn't disclose that uh, two other of her brothers had convictions? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Are you saying that they're intertwined because she didn't disclose that two of her other brothers had convictions on the questionnaire? No, what I'm saying is that the... Judge Ascalani found that she provided it was incorrect or false information. There were two issues that came up under that heading. One is the Martin, the family issue, because she didn't provide that. Yeah, but the transcript's pretty clear at page 218. She's only referring to the accusation conviction uh, issue. She says, because of that, I find that she did provide misinformation because the state is indicating that she has, in fact, been accused of a crime to the point where she did make a court appearance. And while the disposition may have resulted in a dismissal, I do find that she provided incorrect or false information to this court and mm -hmm. did so under oath. That's referring to the accusation slash conviction uh, misinformation. It's not referring to the, mm -hmm. any misinformation regarding family involvement. 
So isn't it, isn't it correct that she didn't make any finding on reason number two at step three? Not a specific finding, no. But I, I, I go even back. In, even in inferential finding? Yes, I, I do believe that on page 218 at line six, when she's talking about incorrect or false information, that that encapsulates both of the objections that came up earlier. I don't see how you can say that, because at line six, starting on line five, this, the same sentence, she says, and while the disposition may have resulted in a dismissal, that's referring to the disorderly conduct issue, isn't it? I don't have line six in front of me. Yes, well, that would be referring to that. Yes. And then she goes on to say, comma, I do find that she provided incorrect or false information. So that's referring to the um, disorderly conduct issue, isn't it? Yes, that would be the disorderly conduct okay. issue. Can you point to anything else in step three where she makes any kind of finding either expressed or implied regarding the family involvement reason? Well, express specific finding, no. Okay. But I, I, I still would argue that she makes a more global finding on line six about providing incorrect or false information, and that would include everything that had been discussed before. Counsel, that, that brings me back to sort of Justice Chudich. That brings me to Justice Chudich's question, which I was trying to figure out, too. What is the, the, the false or misleading information on the family involvement? I mean, it's, it's a version of Justice Littlehog's question, too, that where is that? But you're saying it's sort of globally there. And I'm trying to get at with respect to what? Was it that because she didn't say, and I have these other two brothers as well who were involved in the criminal justice system? Or what was it? The, fir the first hint of that came when Judge Ascalani started asking her questions about it was the top box of, um, or ever witnessed a crime. And then the juror began discussing her brother. So the very first question from the judge was about witnessing a crime. At that point, before the prosecutor had said anything, we learned that Judge uh, Juror Nine's brother hadn't been a witness or a victim. He'd committed one. So now, based on the questionnaire, the whole issue of family members being involved in the criminal justice system has been opened up. And it was subsequent to that, the state was trying to figure out if they had, not only if they had prosecuted this particular person whose name they didn't know. But they're also, during the questioning uh, by Judge Ascalani, the juror nine eventually disclosed that she had two other brothers. So it's this whole, it's So can I just, so there's, there might be something with not disclosing all the family members, but there's a separate family member reason here because they were concerned that the juror, potential juror would be prejudiced or biased because they'd prosecuted her brother whether she lied about it or not. Right. And I think what Justice Lillehog is asking is the court clearly didn't get to that question. So what do, on step three, so what do we, what, what's the result if we find it clearly, if, that they clearly erred on the false statement, you know, so that, or that there was, it was pretextual, right? But then there's the second reason that the district court didn't assess whether it was pretextual or not on step three. What do we do with that? In terms of whether it's remanded or reversed? Yes, I, th I think that um, this court, I suppose, you do have the authority. You could remand it for a specific finding because I do think the finding is in there even though it's not enumerated specifically. But um, in terms of reversal, I, I would ask the court just to read the entire record and see what the discussion was and why Judge Ascalani based her or made her ruling the way she did. Um, but counsel, that 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 feels awful, uh, an awful lot like fact finding to me. You're I, asking us to go back and scour that record and pull out, you know, uh, facts and make and make a make a finding. Well, I think the facts are in the record. I, I don't think I'm asking you to be a fact finder. There are specific um, transcript sites about issues raised, the judge's responses to them, the whole discussion is right there. Counsel, and isn't this kind of like the case, and I'm sorry, I forget the name of it, but where they don't, where the district court doesn't do the steps right, and then we go ahead and say, well, you didn't do the steps right, so we're not giving you the deference, but we're going to look at the record. Because, <clears throat> I mean, to me, it seems like she didn't make a clear finding about that second point, that the close contact with three brothers who had convictions um, causes them to be concerned that she can't be fair and impartial. I don't think the, the district court did 
specifically address that at um, step three. I agree with you that, that those brothers were part of the concern about she's not disclosing information to us, so they were kind of in, intertwined. But I also agree with you that by saying the Martin case when she did, which maybe was at the wrong time because it's step two, that maybe that enables us not to remand it but to look at the whole record without any deference to her. Uh, you said it better than I did, Your Honor. I, th I think this court should ask the court to please just review the entire record and what Judge Ascalani's reasoning was. She did bring up the Martin case. Um, both of the issues that this court has identified, the one that was addressed and the one that was not, were both thoroughly discussed. Judge Ascalani listened to arguments. She raised issues uh, and made factual findings on her own. Um, none of this was hidden, and so I would submit that... So my, only, my only concern about that, though, is that the record discloses... I mean, there's this assertion that... And there's a credibility question here, because the record discloses... That, I mean, the juror, the potential juror, said many times, I don't know anything about my family. I don't relate to my family. Mm -hmm. So isn't there kind of... A, embedded factual dispute there that you have to actually be there to see this going back and forth to make a decision about whether the prosecutor standing in the courtroom really could believe that whether the judge really believed that that was a reason as opposed to racial animus so talking about deference to the trial court and the in the or the well had they made a fine had the trial court made a finding there'd be deference but here we have the juror saying I don't know anything about my family, it's not going to affect me, I can be a good juror, and then the prosecutor coming forward and saying, I'm concerned that her family, her family's involvement in the criminal justice system is going to have an impact on her decision and that she has some agenda, which mm -hmm. she didn't admit at all. How can we sitting here looking at this dry record make a determination of whether we believe the prosecutor or not? I think you... I would ask you to just defer to Judge Ascalani's final. But she didn't finding. make a finding. Not not on the on the family issue. No, she did make it on the other issue. And I come back to the same argument that I was making to Justice Lillehog. But that's a different question. The dishonesty is different from the question of whether her family's involvement just per se in the criminal justice system. Right? Those are yes. two different. Yes. Counsel, can I ask it sort of a related question? What's your response to? Um, your opponent's argument that when we're looking at family involvement, that it has a dis it can have a disproportionate uh, impact and effect on on people of color. I mean, we've got the Martin decision out there, um, 2009, so not not that long ago. Um, but there are certainly uh, studies out there um, that uh, and well studies out there that would suggest that uh, there is a disproportionate impact because people of color and blacks in particular are frequently stopped and investigated mm -hmm. and by the police, um, whereas whites and others are not so much. Um, and in fact, there are even some studies out there now talking about the criminalization of blackness because blacks are frequently targeted and, and uh, uh, surveyed in ways that others are not. Um, and so I would point just to the recent example of the Yale, black Yale co-ed who was uh, a white student called the police on her because she was in her uh, lounge of her dorm and white student thought, well, she doesn't belong here. And so the police came and investigated. Or the Starbucks incident where those gentlemen were charged with trespass. And so you've got a climate, if you will, uh, that has existed for a long time, but it's certainly exacerbated now. So what do we do with that? Is it time to rethink Martin? Is it, um, what do we do with that? I don't believe it's time to rethink Martin. I, still, I think that's still a valid reason, a race-neutral reason for excusing a juror. The disparate impact analysis, um, I would submit, doesn't apply in this case for the following reasons. The, the two issues that came up, yes, people of color have more contact with the criminal justice system perhaps legitimately, perhaps illegitimately. That means more of your relatives. It's true, they yes, do. It, so more of a juror of color's relatives, they're more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system, therefore you can strike them on that basis. The same thing would be true for the, the issue of whether or not you've ever been arrested or accused of a crime. So 
the reason that I don't think it's dispositive in this case is juror nine has no control over whether or not her brothers get arrested or prosecuted in Hennepin County. She has no control over whether or not a police officer inappropriately gives her a ticket for disorderly conduct. What she does have control over is whether or not she follows the judge's order and discloses fully and fairly everything that she's supposed to disclose on the questionnaire. That is not a disparate reason for striking her. That's individual and specific to her. Thank you, counsel. Your red light's on. Thank you. Ms. Um, Yock Erickson, you have uh, 10 minutes for rebuttal. Counsel, before you get going, I'd like to pick up where uh, Justice Hudson left off. Yes. You had a very interesting quotation from the sentencing project in your brief about disproportionate impact of African Americans in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and I was intrigued by that. It's kind of an impact argument rather than a purposeful discrimination argument. But it may suggest that at step two, family involvement is not really a race-neutral reason. Am I, am, I, am I understanding your point? I wholeheartedly agree with you, Your Honor, absolutely. But then we've got Martin, and as I read your brief, I don't see that you're, you're actually making the full-blown argument we should overrule Martin's family involvement can never be a, um, a race-neutral reason. So am, am, I, am I misreading your briefs? No, Your Honor. I, I think it's always trickier to stand here and ask this panel to overrule precedent. Uh, however, what is in my brief and what you can certainly, I mean, you can do whatever you want, but you can certainly no, rule no, that. No, we can't. <laughs> you have supervisory powers, <laughs> Your Honor. You can rule that it is pretextual generally and was pretextual here. Interestingly enough, although this court has said on multiple occasions that it is an acceptable race-neutral reason, you've never explained why it isn't pretextual. What relevance does it have to any juror, and particularly juror nine, that she happens to have family members with involvement in the criminal justice system? Because the reason isn't convictions. The reason isn't they're currently in prison. The reason isn't she's close to them. The reason isn't arrest. It's involvement. Very broad. She says it's got nothing to do with her. She doesn't have any information about it. And to be clear, because I think this is related, the reason given and the reason accepted was that she had family members who were involved. She was never dishonest about that. And the suggestion that it's been made only on appeal that she was is just false. She checks all the boxes on that questionnaire that says, yes, 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 yes. Family members involved at every level. And as soon as she's asked a single question about those family members, she discloses right away that her brother was convicted. So just so the record's clear, the, uh, your client has not, in his briefs, asked us to overrule Martin. I have not, Your Honor. Okay. No. Uh, I would agree that it's time to rethink it. And although we did not specifically ask you to do that, you do have supervisory powers. Washington State has now created a list of reasons that are invalid. You cannot strike people in the state of Washington based on their family members' involvement in the criminal justice system. That recognizes the purpose underlying Batson, that the point is to prohibit strikes based on race, and that some reasons are cover and are very often used as cover, and we just prohibit them. Counsel, um, I was very interested in the Washington State um, jury instruction, I think. Um, but I see a difference between convictions and arrests. I mean, I think arrests are problematic because we do have all this evidence that certain people get arrested more than other people do. But convictions seem to me are another matter. And here you have, you know, three of our family members, you know, with convictions. We have, as far as we know, I mean, sh she doesn't know, I don't believe, all of her siblings' criminal histories. She, just, she doesn't know them very well. What she does admit and readily admits is her the sort of primary brother that they're talking about for most of the time. She doesn't have any problem, problem being a juror on this case. She doesn't know who the prosecutor was. She doesn't care who the prosecutor was. So why is that a race-neutral, non-pretextual reason to strike juror nine here? It's got nothing to do with her fitness as a juror. Well, I don't know. I was a prosecutor in greater Minnesota, so I prosecuted white people. Um, and if I got a juror questionnaire where they had family members, there were some families who were quite notorious in these small towns, and I had this peremptory strike, and I preferred not to have those people on my 
on my jury. It's just like, why, why would you? Why would you ask for any sort of possible problems? Well, but I think the problem here, Your Honor, is that she's asked, and she's asked 25 questions about her family, and none of her answers indicate that she's one of those folks who would have a problem, right? Who says, you know what, I just don't like prosecutors, or the whole Hennepin County government system offends me because they put my family members in jail. In fact, she, she respectfully, fully, completely says, I've got no problem. They ask her specifically, a colleague of ours prosecuted your brother. We're wondering how you feel about that. She says, no, no, not at all. I've got no problem. It's fine. That's her answer. And so to, to strike her based on that doesn't take her at her word. And why are we doing that with respect to Juror 9? So I have a question, and I'm, I don't know if I'm confused, but um, regardless of what we decide about the, the first question, the, the, let's just call it the dishonesty about herself or her con conviction. If, um, if the trial court, and it looks like the trial court did not discuss the second reason in step two, is that an error? Um, can, so am, am I right that there is a case, and I've forgotten the name, but if you don't do it quite right, then we do the steps. And here it seems to me that the district court talked about that that second reason, the family involvement reason, at stage two, at step two. So aren't we in the land where we can then look at the entire record and just not accord that great deference to the district court? So the, there's a few things going on, Your Honor. Those cases that you've referenced are typically where the court blends two of the steps or uh, allows one party to make argument when it's not really their burden or uh, doesn't delineate the steps at all, waits until kind of the end, allows argument on all three steps and makes a conclusion in whole. To be sure, this court has said, that's wrong. And instead, we're just gonna, we're not gonna defer to you anymore. We're gonna review everything. This is not that case. I, as you identified, Justice Tudor, during my principal argument, she did delineate all of the steps. What this court has said in contrast is when you make an error, a clear error, in the analysis, in the, the clear analysis at step two or step three, instead we just find that to be clear error. You don't review de novo. I don't believe there's any case where you've ever done that, but there is McRae, where you said there's simply no pretext analysis here. All the court did was say the prosecutor gave an articulable reason, that's enough. It's very strikingly similar to the district court's pretext reasoning here. She, I, there is no way to say that she inferred some sort of family member finding at step three. She talks about one of them and then says that's sufficient. She doesn't address the other reason at all. That alone is a clear error and a reason you can reverse and give Mr. Adams a two trial, a new trial, also so, a true well, trial. So can I, just to be clear, so if there's two reasons offered by a prosecutor and the court finds one of them race neutral but the other one pretextual, we would reverse in that circumstance? Absolutely, Your Honor. Even if they're... And which is not the case here because she never found anything pretextual. True, yes. I, I think, think of it this way. A, a strike cannot be at all based on a person's race. So if it's 50% based on his or her race, that's based on race, more well, than no, zero. But, but, one, but if you give one reason that's legitimate, then it's not based on race. And one that's illegitimate, then it is based on race. That's the problem. There's plenty of cases. Where's uh, the authority for that, though? Where's the authority for that statement that you just made? That if there is a valid reason and there is an invalid reason, that the court must go with the invalid reason rather than the valid reason? Well, I don't think we're talking about the validity of the reasons. What, what I was saying is if this court were to find one of the reasons to be pretextual, in other words, that one of the reasons was based on Juror 9's race, what if you have the re one, one of the reasons is not pretextual? Isn't that enough to get you to, out of that? Absolutely not. So your argument is re one, one pretextual reason taints the other non-pretextual reason. One pretextual reason means the strike was based on race. It cannot both be based on race and not based on race. It's a yes or no question. And if you have one reason based on race, the whole strike is based on race. So does that mean then that she, that the judge, so the, so the judge here, was required to actually analyze the second reason. And the fact that she didn't itself is a reversible error, that's your position? Absolutely. Because she didn't determine whether it was pretextual one way or another. Absolutely. Can you, have you made that argument in your brief? Because I didn't see it. 
Well, to be sure, I argued that both reasons are pretextual. Sure. Uh, I, I don't know that I thought to specifically argue if you accept one and don't accept the other, it is still grounds for a new trial. Uh, I would say that is clearly implied Counsel, in the briefing. Can you maybe go back to Justice McKegg's uh, question? What is the case that best stands for that proposition? I would say it is at the core of Batson analysis. The Constitution forbids any strike that is based on race. So, so no, no one specific case, but that that's what Batson's about. That's what Batson's about is here's some steps, prosecutor give reasons, and then we analyze all those reasons for pretext. And you're looking for pretext. You're looking for what was the real reason. None of the real reasons can be based on race. It is not acceptable. So the argument is if, if there's a finding specific, affirmative finding of pretext, embedded in that is the notion that the reason is racial. Absolutely. And so yes. that, that's kind of the essence of your argument. Yes. So if it was error not to get to the second reason, then wouldn't the remedy be a remand? No. And that's what you said in McRae, is that this is no, not any... No, we didn't say that in McRae. Where in this case, the district court determined that reason one was not pretextual. If she didn't reach reason two, then we still need her learning, her, her fact-finding on reason two, don't we? No, Your Honor. She made a clear error. She made a clear error in a Batson analysis. Batson is about equal protection and about forbidding racial discrimination. When the court errs on that sort of test, there is no reason to send this back. You grant him a new trial. Thank you, counsel. Thank you very much. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.